A reading from the Old Testament, Job 12, 1 through 13. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God, and he answered me. A just and blameless man am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. The word of the Lord. The psalm today is Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, even the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears, but they hear not. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You have to put your trust in the Lord. He is their helper. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been known unto us, and he shall bless us. He shall bless the house of Israel. He shall bless the house of Israel. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children and May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The New Testament lesson is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, 
what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenaeans and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like God or silver, like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Mark chapter 6. Verses 7 through 13. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Jesus called the twelve, began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil all who were sick, and healed them. This is the Gospel of the Lord. 
Please be seated. We are stepping out of our uh, Genesis series for the next two weeks. Next week is All Saints Day, um, which is one of the, the high holy days of the Christian year. It's one of the feast days. And so that always has its own special liturgy and sermon. Um, but this week, I wanted, to, um, I wanted to go back to this passage in Acts 17. This is a sermon that I preach every couple of years. Uh, I think this is the, the third time that I've done it. So it's about every two or three years. Uh, if you were here as a part of this church when I was candidating for the role of pastor here, then you've actually heard a version of this before, because that was two years ago. I think it's an important thing to remind ourselves of um, how Paul interacts with non-believers in Acts chapter 17. It's important to remind ourselves of it because we can see how God is at work in his creation, and we can see this historical example of how the gospel spreads. But I think it's also instructive for us to be an example for us as we go out into the world with this same message. Let me pray for us as we open God's word together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we would hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and by the comfort of your Holy Spirit, we may embrace and ever hold fast that blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. If you have a Bible, open it to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in the, the second half of that chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there are blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those is yours to keep. So Paul has been going on this missionary journey, and he comes to Athens. Athens, Greece, was one of the pinnacle cities of civilization. In, in ancient Athens, there was once a politician named Pericles. When Pericles was talking about the city of Athens, he said that because of the sheer greatness of this city, all things flow into it from the entire world. There is no city today that, as is, that is as important as Athens was during its height. To be from Athens meant that you were really somebody. It meant that you had stature and status. This was a city of culture. It was a city of commerce. It was also very much a, a city of learning. It was kind of the seat of the academy. It's where philosophy came from. They, they loved to talk about ideas, new ideas, what was new, what was next. They prized rhetoric and discussion. Our text tonight says it specifically in, in verse 21. It says that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What's that thing that no one else has thought of? What's this new idea that we can kind of fold into our worldview? And into the center of this, this exalted city, this incredibly important place where everything from the surrounding world would flow into it, into the center of deep thinking comes Paul. Paul walks into the city and he is troubled in his spirit because he can see that the city is full of idols. What's his first reaction? What does he do about it? He doesn't rush into the center of the city or where the temples are and start tearing down idols and smashing them to the ground. But he also doesn't ignore it. He does what he always does. He follows this same rhythm of, uh, of missionary work that we see all the way through Acts. 
In verse 16, it says he finds the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue and he talks with the Jews who are in Athens about the things of God. Paul always goes to the Jews first in any new city, and I think there's a reason for that. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And so the Jews would have already had much of that Christian worldview in their mind already. Christianity really is just the fulfillment, the natural extension and fulfillment of Judaism. For instance, Jews believed that there was only one God, that he was both a loving shepherd and a righteous judge. None of the pagans in Athens would have had any categories for things like that. And so it's understandable that the first place Paul would go is to people who might be more inclined to hear this message. Hey, this Messiah that you've heard about, that's been promised to you, well, he came. God already brought him. His name was Jesus. Let me tell you all about him. So he goes to the Jews in the synagogue. But Paul didn't just go to the Jews because Jesus had said that his gospel of the kingdom of God was for the entire world, for the Jew and also for the Gentile or for the Greek or basically a word, any word that means every person that isn't a Jew. And so Paul goes not only to the synagogue, but he goes to the marketplace. He goes to where people congregate. And he preaches the exact same message, which is wild, because if you went up to any Jew at that time and said, hey, did you know that there's only one God? Did you know that, that people were made in the image of this God, but that they fell into sin? And did you know that, that God himself has promised a way out of that sin and back to him? The Jews would have said, yeah, sure, we, we know all that. I mean, it hasn't come yet, but sure, we know that. But the, the, the pagans, the Athenians, would have looked at you like you were nuts. I mean, that's just they, they wouldn't have had the categories for it. And so in the synagogue, he found the Jews. In the market, he finds merchants, tradesmen, tent makers like himself, people of all stripes and all stations from multiple countries, everything flowing into the city of Athens. And in both places, we are told, and I think this is instructive for, for me anyway, in both places, we are told that he reasoned with them. That's how the ESV translates. He reasoned with them. Now, that's a good translation, but I think that a more helpful one is if you actually look back at what the original word in Greek was. He dialogued with them. I think it's incredibly important to remember that. When you reason with somebody, you can just present them with this logical syllogism of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. And then if they don't buy into it, if they don't get it, then you can just kind of shake the dust off your shoes and move on with life, I guess. But if you're going to actually be like Paul, if you're going to dialogue with somebody, that means both speaking and listening. He dialogued with the Jews in the synagogue, and then he dialogued with the workers and the bosses in the marketplace. This has been, for me anyway, a real growth area in the last years, learning to listen better, becoming a better listener, not just pausing and waiting for them to be done talking so that it's my turn to talk again, but actually, actually stopping, being present, and attending to what they're saying and really trying to hear someone. If Paul wasn't dialoguing with people, what would he have been doing? Well, he would have been preaching. And he certainly did do that. But the majority of his time was spent in conversation. And I think that that's where we need to, where, where we need to see ourselves in this. Conversation with non-believers. And Paul had guts because Paul was not just 
Paul was not just in conversation with these people, not just dialoguing with these people about the weather or the price of tent fabric, but he was dialoguing with these people about stuff that they probably didn't want to hear. Truths that he had been given about Jesus of Nazareth, about his life and death and resurrection. Uncomfortable truths. Truths that if you try to get into a conversation with somebody and they're not really picking up what you're putting down, that may very well be the end of the conversation. Relationship-risking truths. The truth is that God has made a way for us to to go back to him. The truth is, the truth that Paul was proclaiming was the gospel. We heard that so centrally said in both in, in, in the passage in Acts, that in him, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. And this is the good news that God has brought us to share with others. If you come to Foundations this afternoon, we're actually going to be talking a little bit more about what the gospel is, what it really means, and what its implications are. And so while Paul was dialoguing with all these different groups of people, we see in verse 18 that some of these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers actually entered into conversation with him. Stoicism and Epicureanism were were the two main schools of philosophy at this time. And and this is incredibly simplistic, and and it's a little... It's too boiled down, but, but in general, the Stoics prized reason and natural law above all else and said, well, there really is no God, but if there was one, he would just consist of reason and natural law, and so we should worship those things. And that's what they did. And they're basically, the whole goal of life was, was to, to get at a more rationed and reasoned existence and to discover what natural law was and to, and to live that way. The Epicureans, on the other hand, though if the Stoics believed in self-improvement, the Epicureans believed in self-indulgence. The Epicureans said that life pretty much has no purpose and, and the best use of your time can be to eat, drink, and be merry and indulge your pleasures at every given opportunity. And so the Stoics and the Epicureans, opposite ends of the spectrum, and both of them are intrigued by what Paul is saying because he's giving a message of, of grace, of a God who gives favor to those who don't deserve it. But he's also giving a message of of calling to repentance and a new life in Christ. So both of these two groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they're so intrigued by Paul and dialoguing with him that they invite him to come up to the top of Mars Hill, the Areopagus. This is kind of probably was either a civil court or it was the center of the the philosophical school. And so into these two competing beliefs steps Paul we are treated to a picture of exactly how we should talk to non-Christians about Jesus. So he gets these two main groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, but he doesn't attack what they're saying. He doesn't say, I'm right and you're wrong and let me tell you why. What he does, and I think this is brilliant, is he learns enough about them through dialogue. And probably this wasn't the first time that he'd talked with these kinds of people, but he knows enough about them through dialogue that he can find the touch points between their belief system and his. They can, he can find what are the commonalities between their belief system and his. What's their theology? Because, and this is important to know, every single person that you will ever meet has a theology. Everyone is a theologian. Everyone is a philosopher. 
whether it's the professional thinkers at Mars Hill or whether it's the merchants down in the marketplace. Everybody is a theologian because everybody has some concept of what is there in the world that is greater than them. Everyone is a philosopher because everyone has an idea about how logic and reason works and what its place is in our conversation. Everyone has an idea about how life works best and how we should pursue it. And so Paul, learning enough about them by dialoguing, by listening, he finds the touch points between their religion and ours. Let me give you some modern examples of what this might be as you start to think about what does this have to do with me. Maybe you have a friend from down the street who her concern over anything else is for the poor and the disadvantaged. Maybe you have a coworker whose concern more than anything else is for justice and fair treatment for all. Maybe you have a brother or a sister who has a commitment to family and to hard work. These things, all of these three things, caring for the poor, righteousness and justice, and a commitment to hard work and family, these are inherently Christian values that much of the Western world has borrowed over the last several thousand years of Christian influence, but these are Christian values. And so for any of those three people, you can find ways to say, I think it's wonderful, seriously. I think it's great that you care about this thing. Have you ever thought about where that value in you comes from? Have you ever thought about where that, where that belief, why you hold that central, where does that come from in you? Let me tell you about what the God of the Bible says about the poor. Let me tell you what the God of the Bible says about justice. Let me tell you what the God of the Bible says about family and hard work. And that's what Paul did here. He saw a commonality between the Athenian worldview and the Christian worldview. And it was the belief that there was something bigger than us, something greater than ourselves. Some of the people, when he was talking to them, thought he was nuts. Some of them thought he was bringing new foreign gods to be worshipped. Because you see, in those days, it didn't matter what gods you worshipped. It really didn't. They did not care at all, as long as whatever local backwater, hick town gods you worshipped and dragged with you into Athens, you could worship those all the day long, as long as you also worshipped the gods of the, of the Roman Empire. That was the important thing. It was basically rigid adherence to a, a state religion masking itself as pluralism or religious tolerance. And these people in this time took their religion incredibly seriously. You can do whatever you want as long as you also paid fealty to these gods who we believe are keeping us safe. And these people, when they were listening to Paul, they had given him enough ammo that he saw his way in. And so it's here that Paul begins his jumping off point by talking about God. I'm just going to read this whole thing out again because this is just a great way of dialoguing with non-Christians. So I'm just going to read the whole thing, starting in verse 22. <clears throat> so Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, he's talking about the idols that were lined up, I observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And you can almost picture him pointing to one of the many temples that would be in Athens. He does not live in temples made by, made by hands made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything they have. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined determined allotted periods or the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far off from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of mankind. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is an incredible sermon, an incredible presentation of the gospel from creation to fall to redemption to consummation. God, the infinite creator, Mankind desperately in need of a God as we fumble our way towards him. And then this revelation of Christ, the Redeemer and Perfector. And that revelation of of who Christ was, was proven by the fact that he was raised from the dead. Any of you know anyone who would define themselves as spiritual but not religious? I know I do. It's how many people today describe their, kind of their, their spiritual journey. It's how I described myself for about 20 years, from the time I started to walk away from my faith shortly after going to a Christian college till about 10 years ago when God brought me back to him. It may actually be how some of you describe yourself. The Mars Hill people that Paul was talking to up in the top of the Areopagus, they would have been the definition of spiritual but not religious. They knew that there was something greater than themselves out there. They absolutely knew it. And they were so fearful of what that creative power might be that they actually built an idol saying, we think we've got all the gods squared away. We've got Apollo and we've got Athena and we've got Zeus and we've got, I don't know, this other one and a couple more that these people dragged in from the countryside. We've got all these idols, but here's this one in case we missed one. This is the idol to an unknown God. In case there's one out there who might get mad at us if we don't acknowledge him, then we're just going to build this to this one too. So now this is like the total cover your bases idol to an unknown God. And Paul, Paul sees that and he says, no, 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 no. It's not an unknown God. It's a God who has revealed himself. Our God is a known God. This unknown God sort of hides behind all the made-up idols is, is the one who actually is the only known one. He's the only one that's real, and he is the one that creates and sustains everything. The people in Athens were putting their faith in idols. We heard this in our psalm today. As for our God, he is in heaven. He, he has done whatever pleased him. Their idols, now it wasn't talking about the people of Athens, it was talking about the people in the nations outside Israel, but same thing. Their idols are of silver and gold, the work of human hands. These idols have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't move. Those who make them, it says, those who make these idols are just like them. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Hands, but they can't grasp. 
speak, but they can't move. And so Paul is saying to the people on Mars Hill, look guys, there actually is a creator and a redeemer, a knowable God, and you can know him too. A God who was made knowable when he became, a God who was made knowable through, through the words that he inspired people to write down, what we call the Bible, but also a God who was made eminently knowable when that God became a man. A God-man named Jesus who died for our sins. A, a God-man who rose for our justification as the leader of a, a resurrection people that anybody gets to be a part of. A God-man who is currently and always will be the eternal king of this world with all authority on heaven and earth given to him and who will one day remake the entire cosmos into a perfect vision of itself. He's saying, let me tell you about this God. So you'd think... You'd think that this kind of speech, at least if it was going to be a, a nice made-for-TV movie, it would, be, it would get a rousing response. And in fact, we see that in other places in Acts. You know, people will preach sermons, and it says that thousands of people were converted. And that would be great if that's what happened here. It's not. It is not what happened here. It wasn't exactly a massive conversion day. Paul addresses what, what we believe to be a very large crowd. And all it says is that some believed. It also says some openly mocked him. And some of them said, we don't believe you, but if you want to have this exact same conversation again a little bit later, we'll listen. But it says that some believed, and that's the important thing. I think it's a lot like what our life is sharing the gospel in a, in a post-Christian world. God doesn't promise that when we tell others about Jesus, it's always going to go great, and they're going to drop to their knees in repentance and ask, can I come to your church on Sunday? He doesn't promise, also, that the more skilled we are at it, the better it'll go for us. Sometimes, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter how skilled you are as an evangelist or as a witness to the resurrection, sometimes all you'll get is someone mocking you. That's very possible. Sometimes all you'll get is somebody, at the best case, saying, I don't think any of that's true, but if you want to tell me again later, I guess I'll listen to you again. But what we know is that sometimes some will believe. And that's enough. That's enough for us. I wish that we could all have the, the courage and the conviction of Paul to go into these places and spread this message. But I know that sometimes I'm scared. Sometimes it is much more comfortable for me to have a dialogue conversation about the weather or a local sports team or literally anything other than these crazy things that we believe. I have to admit that, and I'm sure that that's true for some of you. But I love reading this story. I love reading about how Paul would just boldly enter into these places and say, I see, I see the good values that you have. Let me tell you why those are Christian values. Let me tell you where they really come from. Let me tell you about the God who not only created the entire vastness of everything that's in the universe and every single thing in it, but who also specifically, personally created you and who will listen if you talk to him and who also gave us a savior and a way back to him so that we could fulfill what we were, desti what we were meant to become. This is the kind of interaction that we, that we often see in Jesus when he talks to others. And it's the same kind of interaction that Paul has now, Jesus did not go charging into Jerusalem, 
demanding an audience with the Sanhedrin and preaching to them and saying, let me tell you why all the things you believe are wrong. He didn't, he didn't go to the halls of power and demand that he be heard. But he also didn't go hide out in the countryside, biding his time, waiting for the day when God was going to call him to go to the cross. Paul didn't do either of those extremes either. What, what they did is they moved among the people. They interacted with them. They dialogued with them. He invested in individual people, and he both loved them and challenged them. He invested in individual people, and he loved them and challenged them and then loved them some more and kept trying to draw them back to himself. Paul in Athens, the same thing. The Jews, the Gentiles, the, the merchants, the textile workers, <clears throat> bosses, academics, all he did was have conversations. This should be instructive to us, guys. This should be a challenge to us. He talked and he listened. My prayer for me this week is that I may be more like this, both a good listener and also a good talker, that we will be willing to dialogue with people about this truth that we, know, that we have inside of us. I, I, I used this quote a couple weeks ago, but C.S. Lewis said that Christianity, if it's true, is the most important thing in the whole world. This isn't an exact quote, but Christianity, if it's true, is of ultimate importance. Christianity, if not true, is of absolutely no importance. The only thing that it can't be is moderately important. And so if we believe these things to be true, may it drive us to more want to spread that good news to others. Because this is a known God that we serve. The God who made heaven and earth, the God who made all things, he is known to us and he knows us. We serve a known God. As we go out in the body of Christ today to, to be a light to those around us, may we go out confident and humble in how to have those dialogues, how to, how to do those conversations. And may we actually, as we do that, see more of him ourselves today. May we know him more today, this known God who we love to serve because he is not far from each one of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have empowered us with this message and this witness of who you are. We ask you for boldness, Lord, as we go out into a world of people who will often share some of our values but not others, of people who will share little bits of our worldview but not others. We ask for boldness that we would risk foolishness, that we would risk possible loss of work opportunities, that we would risk possibly friendships, but that we would winsomely and, and boldly and humbly proclaim the truths about Jesus Christ that we know to be true. It's in his name that we pray.